Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Orson and Chapman pod on The Athletic, along with David. Uh, we're joined today by The Athletic's Adam Crafton and Ollie Kay. And coming up, we'll focus on the backlash and protest from fans of the Premier League's biggest clubs against their owners uh, that has brought the game in England to a tipping point, really, and discuss what could happen next. We'll also continue... To look ahead to how the England national side is shaping up ahead of the Euros, Gareth Southgate will now be able to pick a 26-man squad, so who will benefit? And you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. So as the whole world knows, Manchester United fans protested over the weekend. Uh, those protests have been going on for many years. The ones this weekend obviously led to the postponement of Manchester United against Liverpool. The FA have asked the six English clubs involved in the Super League proposals to provide information and evidence around their participation. And the Premier League have also said they will seek to hold clubs accountable for their actions around the Super League. Given what's happened over the last two or three weeks, Adam, let me start with you. Is there any surprise at what we saw on Sunday? I don't think there is. And I think that's almost like what I still can't get my head around with the way that the Super League proposals came out. Because, you know, OK, it might sound easy now to say with hindsight, all these things would have happened. But a lot of what's happened since the launch was really quite foreseeable on the day. Even if you take something like uh, the intervention by the government, you know, we knew that Boris Johnson's government is a, is a pro-Brexit government that's quite populist, that will respond to whichever way the wind blows. So when he threatens a legislative bomb, that shouldn't have been hugely surprising. You then had the day after Monday Night Football on Sky, where you had Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher, um, and this vacuum, um, which they could fill with opposition, again, it was as if the Super League clubs didn't see that coming. I would be amazed if nobody at, the, at Manchester United or Liverpool would have thought two weeks ago when launching the Super League, gosh, this, this match has the potential to be a tinderbox moment. You know, if we go through with this, a platform for fans to gather, to protest. So am I surprised that, that fans congregated yesterday? No, also because it was trailed all week. In, in the media. So I don't think it is a surprise at all. I totally understand the strength of the feeling. Um, we know, you know, a couple of people went too far, but I think generally, you know, people, I think it was Carragher the other day said that it felt like a good day for, for English football. And, you know, I think I'd be lying if I, if I was to say that I felt anything other than that on the day watching, watching it play out. David? Yeah, I think the momentum now is the most interesting thing of all because it feels like a bit of a seminal moment. It's easy to say that, and it's far more difficult to predict what will happen, how ownership views and actions may change, what role government has to play in this. And, and Ollie touched upon that in a really interesting and detailed piece. But it feels like the Super League has kind of been the, the tipping point 
like the match that has has lit the the bonfire that's been building, piling up year after year, month after month. Like reading Ollie's piece, I sort of thought to myself, it's like when you're on a night out and you're going with the flow and you lose perspective of what's going on and that you should really go home and stop with this. And then you just have one more drink and you don't really think of the repercussions. It was like they tried it on with that Super League one more time to go one step further. Like they've become so detached from the reality and the feeling on the ground and the reaction. And that was really one of Ollie's main points. How on earth did they manage to underestimate the reaction okay they didn't want to canvas fan opinion player opinion manager opinion and and they hid behind confidentiality reasons why they couldn't do that and they've pledged to engage further in the future but how on earth did they not realize the strength of the reaction maybe i didn't realize it would quite go this far but this seems to have tipped things over and now we are almost it feels like the train has left the platform in terms of the fans, not the Super League. And I don't think there's any pulling it back from here. The thing with the, the protest on Sunday, Ollie, though, was the Super League provided or the Super League proposal provided the Manchester United fans with a platform to vocalise their opposition to the Glazers on a wider level. Because the opposition to the Glazers is much deeper than trying to take the club into the Super League. It is the neglect of a ground. It It is the, well, and, and it is the main, you know, it is also not communicating with the fans. It is the arrogance that they can just own the club and never communicate to Manchester United fans. And most importantly, it is taking £1 billion out of a club that was self-sustainable to leverage the debt and... Yeah, no, more than one billion, maybe, but to leverage the debt and pay themselves dividends. That's club money raised by commercial activities and fans paying season tickets. That's actually all the things that the United fans were able to protest about. Yeah, it wasn't an anti-Super League protest. It was an anti-Glazer protest, same as the the, the protest at Arsenal. But it, it needed that trigger, a catalyst to create a new wave. And there have been there has been wave after wave after of protest. I, I was there outside Old Trafford as a slightly terrified reporter on the night that the Glazers were brought there in an armoured van back in 2005. And they were basically barricaded in by the fans. And there were, there were really angry scenes then. They had to be sort of pulled up, you know, driven out by riot police through, through these barricades at the time. That kind of thing happened at the time. It was easily forgotten. There was the green and gold campaign in 2010, which was at a time when United were doing really well. They'd just won three consecutive league titles. That is a really important point, actually. When people say, oh, if United were if United were in with a chance of winning the Premier League or in the Champions League still, they wouldn't be doing this. Well, yes, they did. They did do that in 2010 when they were doing well. They did it when the Glazers took over in the mid-2000s. Fergie was there. They were doing well. The, it, this isn't about success for United fans. This is about... This is about being treated like mugs. To underline Mark's point quickly before you come in, Ollie, I was at the 2005 FA Cup final in Cardiff, Manchester United on the verge of silverware with a brilliant team, including Rooney and Ronaldo. They were vicious that day. Pre-match, I was walking through it. The protests, the glazer out, the burning of American flags, the green and gold. They started a new club 
as you said, this is not related to success or failure, transfers or sales. It is related to an underlying discontent, hatred, call it what you like, that has now boiled over yet again, not as a reaction to the Super League, but that was the trigger point. There have been waves of it. It hasn't been sustained protest at every game. It hasn't been chance at every game. But but over the years, there have been waves of it. It's always needed a, a sort of trigger to, you know, whether that's been financial accounts, whether it's been something the club have communicated or miscommunicated, or whether it's been, you know, light shone on it by the media. It's sometimes been bad results, obviously. But this time, the, the trigger for the new wave of protests was joining the Super League or threatening to join the Super League. And the same at Arsenal. And we've had protests at Liverpool. We've had protests specifically against the Super League at Chelsea. Even protests by Manchester City fans who I think um, are eternally grateful to their owners and willing to overlook a lot of things because they're grateful for what the owners have done for their club. It's a very different ownership model to Manchester United. But... In every case, there is anger. And I think it's fascinating and reassuring, really, that that anger is being led by the fans of those six clubs rather than the, well, the 14 clubs or the 86 clubs or the hundreds of clubs or the thousands of clubs across Europe who've been left behind. Your article, Ollie, says, you know, what is clear is that those owners severely misjudged the strength of feeling against their precious Super League project and the arrogance and greed that fueled the whole ill-conceived venture. That arrogance just doesn't go away. So the obvious question is, what next? I think if the Glazers were the type to um, listen and succumb to popular feeling and, and, and fan power, I think Manchester United would look very different 16 years on. I think they probably wouldn't have bought it in the first place. So whether this prompts any kind of softening at all in the Glazers' stance, I don't know. I mean, there's been talk of supporter consultations with fans, groups, etc. But is Joel Glazer going to listen? Is he going to? Is he even? Is he even going to be part of those calls? It, it's it's unclear. It's Dan Kroenke. There's been lip service, I think, to, to Arsenal fans in, in in terms of engaging on that level. But does anything ever change? Do they ever make decisions that make you think that they're listening? In those various sort of half-hearted apologies or purse-clutching. Apologies that we we saw from executives or owners over the last few weeks. You got the impression, oh, right, well, well we misjudged that. We will learn from it. But they've been misjudging th- things for years, these owners. They've never learned. If they'd learned, they would not have gone with this thing, which they knew that, that there would be a huge backlash against. They were prepared to live with the backlash, but then they, whether it's political pressure, whether it's political pressure prompted by fan pressure, whether it was sort of geopolitical pressure in one or two cases, they lost their nerve, they, they backed out. And apart from anything else, apart from, we know that they're stubborn men, stubborn businessmen, successful businessmen in some cases, but we know that they are also not very good at this. The Glazers are not very good owners at Manchester United. There are people who will say, look at Manchester United's commercial growth and say, yeah, that's, what, that's roughly the direction every big club has gone in commercially over the last 15 years. But that they haven't, they haven't invested. They, they've done well out themselves as owners, but they've not improved the business. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Mm-hmm. 
I spoke to Andy Mitten from The Athletic on Sunday, and Andy made the point of this isn't just about United, it's obviously about the other clubs involved in, in the Super League proposals, but it's also about looking at reform of English football because of what has happened to Macclesfield or Bury or Bolton or Portsmouth or Blackpool. And one of the interesting things, Adam, in all of those in all of that list is that Blackpool fans seem to me to me to be the only ones who properly properly boycotted their club. I mean, around 10,000 of them, I think, man, it stayed away for a lot of years at Blackpool because of how their club was owned. And a fan who was at the protest for United said to me the other day, well. Yeah, you know, when when the Glazers came in and 3,000 people handed their season tickets back in and set up FC United, we lost 3,000 passionate United fans who might have been able to make some kind of difference. And that's the thing. Only Blackpool fans seem to have boycotted games and actually achieved something. All other fans, it feels like we're powerless, even if we boycott, because someone will just come behind us. I think that feeds into a lot of what we've seen over the past couple of weeks. It is that real sense of disempowerment that I think has really that has really hurt people. And it, and all those sort of scare stories, I suppose, that we've heard over the years that, you know, about American owners, they're going to come in, they're going to turn it into a franchise, they're going to get rid of promotion and relegation, they're going to make it a closed shop. It was like all of a sudden, shit, they're doing it. They're actually going to do it. You know, this thing that we've all warned about is, is now happening. Um, and, and you're right, you know, I think, you know, 4,000 Man United fa- uh, fans could hand in their season tickets tomorrow on the waiting list probably has another 4,000. Or they could fill it with tourists once the country opens up again. So, uh, and also Manchester United, they, do they really depend on ticket income to, to that to that level you know unless the stadium's half empty they'll probably be okay i do agree it's very hard to see what's effective i think you know that some of the conversation i've had over the last couple of days i think what would cause the glazers most anxiety is if the sponsors and the partners start to receive quite a bit more pressure and we've seen this before i think around 18 months ago there were some really severe protests around i think there was a home defeat against burnley um, when united lost 2-0 and there was some really, you know, pretty personal, horrible chants about Ed Woodward that night. And I think there was a social media campaign around then targeting some of the club's advertisers, some of the club's partners. And there was a real edginess within the club about, you know, where does that lead? You know, if you know, I think over the last couple of days, Man United supporters have started leaving negative reviews on TeamViewer, who are going to be the next shirt sponsor. And, you know, if those brands start to feel that being associated with Manchester United tarnishes them in some way, and that extent, I suppose, becomes a bigger factor than what they stand to gain from it, then do they continue? Do the terms remain the same? Are there clauses? You know, if we start to receive negative negative coverage associated with this, do we have to pay the same amount? And then when you combine that with the fact that generally the team doesn't win, trophies that's been the story of the past eight years is it worth it so I I think that's where the Glazers would be most anxious you know if the partners the sponsors probably even more so than the ticket income I think that and I know those discussions are sort of ongoing at the moment between different groups of United fans what do they do next I would I wouldn't be surprised if that's the route that they end up going down David do you think that might be a, a, a route for fans of of other clubs as well well, you'd like to think so, because the disconnect has become so severe and the anger has really peaked. But when you think about it practically, like 
in the case of Arsenal, they've got an interested party there by all accounts. And even last night, Thierry Henry, who's backing the Daniel Ek takeover interest, was speaking at length and very passionately about why he believes this needs to happen and how they've got the resources in place for it to happen if the Cronkies will listen. And you'll may hear similar things around Liverpool, not so much Manchester City and Chelsea, which seems an interesting situation in itself because those benefactors have kind of got their club the success that they've never had before. Uh, Maybe a little bit too with Tottenham. I don't know if we need to now in football be preparing for the next wave. So if and when they do pass it on at some point in the future, that the right safeguards are in place. And we saw the Premier League statement uh, suggesting there's going to be a new sort of owner's covenant of sorts. But I think they need to look at their distribution models as well and and equity in the pyramid. And, And one thing that I find really important here is fans, we all want change here. We want better ownership of of clubs. Who's going to come in and bankroll Manchester United? And are they going to do a better job? Who's going to have the money to take them over and then invest the sums that that fans want to be ploughed into transfers? And who's going to allow fans to come on to the board? I, I have spoken to people uh, of different clubs who say, goodness me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want fans anywhere near my club running it. They, they, they would just be arguing amongst each other and we'd have civil wars, one group of fans overthrowing the other group of fans. Of course, there's, there's a medium to be struck, but this is just chaos. This is just chaos and it's blighting the sport. With Manchester United, I mean, they've been able to do some pretty big transfers over the past 10 years, but that's never needed people to put money into the club. Yeah. The Glazers have never put money into the Correct. club. The club has been sustaining that by itself. So I totally take the point about who on earth is the person, the person or the consortium that's got... 3 million, 4 million to take it off the Glazers. But once you actually have the club, I don't think there is this call for, you know, they need to be putting in 100 million of their own money every year. That's not, Manchester United can sustain itself. Yeah. And I think that's the argument the fans are making. But absolutely, where does it go yeah. next? You know, you look at the sums involved and it becomes, well, do you give a state's private equity and all the associated risk that comes with that? Does it, you know, do you, do you sell out to, um, to a nation state in the way that other clubs have and the perils that come with that, that there is no, there is no easy answer to that. But, you know, I, I don't think it's fair for us to say, you know, Manchester United fans want someone who is going to plough money into transfers because the money, the club can, the club can do that. I think. No, I, yeah. And I didn't actually mean United specifically, yeah. but it, it is a common thing you hear among fans sure. who want an owner out and they sure, want other and other clubs. Yeah. They, they do want money ploughed in, but yeah, I'm, I guess I'm looking towards that future point. And, you know, there was a really interesting piece explaining the 50 plus one model of Germany and the Bundesliga on the athletic by Raf Honigstein. And that's that has its pitfalls as well. It's better than what we seem to have here. But then it brings all sorts of different questions into the equation, like what effect would it have on, on the government and, and the British economy to lose this level of investment on the prestige of the Premier League to not be potentially the biggest league in world football, attra- attracting all of this television and commercial revenue. I want a better game, better ownership, just as much as anyone else. But I can't begin to think how it comes about other than a concerted conversation and some procedures put in place for the day that some of these guys do sell. Everybody says, well, look, 
everything changed with the Premier League, the formation of the Premier League, with, with Manchester United floating in 1991, with Sky coming on board. But really, everything changed with, say, the Abramovich takeover in 2003, and then the Glazers takeover in, in 2005. Two incredibly different takeovers. Couldn't be, couldn't be more different in terms of motivation or approach or philosophy or whatever. But those two different takeovers should have set alarm bells ringing where people thought, well, is this what we want? Do we want just anybody be able to buy any club and do whatever they want to do, whether it's transforming it for personal stroke political reasons or whether it's a nakedly capitalist model where you take money out. You don't put money in, you take money out year after year. The club basically props up your ownership. Both of those things, to my mind, are incredibly unhealthy, but nothing was ever done about it. Nothing was ever put in place to stop those and nothing was ever put in place to stop or to prevent those things happening again. So 18 years down the line from the Abramovich takeover, 16 years on from the Glazers takeover, we're thinking, right, well, okay, what should happen? And it's 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 so difficult to do anything now because people say, oh, oh 50 plus one model. So if you had half of Manchester United or half of Chelsea or half of Liverpool, whatever, being sold into supporter investment or, or whatever, the sums involved are phenomenal. They're, we're talking about billions. Now, some clubs have a massive fan base, but most most don't. It's so difficult to sort of close the stable door that now it's, you know, the horse is bolted type thing. But something has to be done. There has to be some kind of regulation. I generally roll my eyes at the ideas of, you know, these government select committee inquiries and government-led reviews, etc. in football. It needed something doing 20 years ago. David Conn tweeted, Ollie, and this is exactly it. Thinking of 20 wasted yeah. years, the Premier League fought, argued and briefed against FA heads and supporter groups who wanted this. It, 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 it's, you know, people have complained about it and moaned about it over the years. And fans groups have been there campaigning against... Uh, all sorts of owners for 20 years. And the authorities have just stood by uh, uh, and let it happen. I genuinely don't see how you can get it back to some kind of ideal ownership model. But Adam, what about baby steps? You mentioned this government we're under at the moment and a sort of populist take on things that we've seen. What about really tiny steps? where you have to have some sort of representation. Thierry Henry was talking about a golden share, but even just a, a voice being listened to as mandatory. How about uh, the owner of Manchester United actually attending the fans forum that was called as an emergency last week? That would be a baby step. You know, Joel Glazer, he had someone else read out a letter for him. I mean, come on. I mean, you, you know, you're a bit, you are, a, this is the thing I just can't get over from the past two weeks. You know, we've sort of been socialised and brought up to think these people are impressive and then they can't read out their own letter. It's not even in person. It's on a Teams call. Turn up, talk to people. What You know, that is the, that is the smallest baby step imaginable. But I think it would actually do, it would do something. I would say it would do wonders. But, you know, it's very easy to abuse people when they are faceless and almost seem, they almost don't seem human. Um, so that would, that would be one step. You guys are all right in terms of, you know, we, we almost slept, we, we slept walked through, sleepwalked, slept walked um, through, through 15 years, at 20 years of, of these ownership changes. And, and we kind of all built into it. You know, the Glazers came in, then a lot of different American owners came in, and then an American media company came in, and we all work for them because there's a lot more interest in, in, in the States now. So we've all, I, I think we all have a sort of a stake in this 
kind of as well. And we all enjoyed the Premier League becoming a far more globalised force and having, you know, five or six teams now who are who have a chance of winning the Champions League um, over the next few years. So I, I think we have to be a little bit, it, it, it's easy to say now, or oh, the Premier League, you know, didn't want to do this, didn't want to do that. But I think there's been a lot of times we've enjoyed through that as well. I think the, the thing that, that has surprised me most is that, you know, you look at the Glazers, FSG, Kronker, and they're all meant to be fantastic businessmen, but they've actually proven themselves over the past two weeks to be really, ba- really, really, really bad at business, to so fundamentally misunderstand and misinterpret all of your stakeholders whether that's the fans or the media or the government, or even, you know, in, in some cases, you know, it might be governments back home for a couple of those clubs to, to, so, to so badly misunderstand that what you consider to be your client base or your stakeholders to leave yourselves this vulnerable. You know, people were saying yes on, on Sunday, oh, the Glazers won't care about Manchester United, Liverpool being called off. Of course they will. Of course they will. Of course the Premier League cares about that. That was never part of part of the plan that all oh, United Liverpool might get called off, but we'll dust ourselves down. Of course they care. That that is as big a blow as fans can strike. To get that game called off on a global scale, I think you know it's pretty it's pretty significant. But it is just the the ordinariness that we've seen over the past two weeks from these owners is it's baffling. Is there, Ollie? I kind of think Arsenal and United are. are- and their fans are, are very much on the same page because of how much they despise their owners and their ownership model. We've already said, you know, Chelsea and Manchester City are over there. Tottenham fans direct a lot of their anger at, at, at Daniel Levy and, and Enoch as well. But Daniel Levy's seen as the, the face, isn't he, really, of, of Tottenham, as we've discussed before on this. Where do FSG sit in this? Because, it, I mean, I've seen I've seen sort of quotes from... You know, fan groups connect. You know, really respected fan groups connected to Liverpool to say it is wrong to to lump FSG in with the Glazers because what FSG do do is they do try and maintain a dialogue with the fans. They do, they do do regular apologies when when they get <laughs> things wrong and they've got a few things wrong. Let's say that, and they don't appear to have taken money out of the club in the way that obviously the Glazers have done. So. Is it important we don't lump the six all in together? Or does that not matter at this stage? They've not invested their own money, but they have invested or allowed the club to invest in infrastructure, training ground, stadium expansion. They've made good decisions. They've appointed good people on the ground in in, in Liverpool, not least Jurgen Klopp. I think had they got those decisions less spot on, had it not been an opportune moment when Jurgen Klopp happened to be available back in 2015, maybe... The FSG would be seen in a in a different, less sympathetic light, but they have made good decisions. That you can't say that about the Glazers. You can't say that about Stan Kroenke. That, that that they've made good decisions. They haven't. The club has declined under both of those ownerships. Whereas Liverpool, if you look at what the previous American owners, is it relevant that they're American owners? Perhaps it is. Perhaps it isn't. But the previous owners. They were running it into the ground. It was a disaster, and it needed saving back in 2010. FSG have, have built the club back up again. But does that entitle them to be seen favourably when they are defying the fans' wishes, when they're completely misjudging the mood on Merseyside time and time again, when they're plotting behind the backs of their supporters, behind the backs of other Premier League clubs, when their ambitions in terms of what they want for the sport are 
precisely the same as the Glazers. John Henry and Joel Glazer are in sort of constant contact about all of these issues. And they don't respect the traditions of English football, the traditions of Liverpool, the traditions of European football at all. So, yes, in terms of that particular criticism, they absolutely deserve to be put in the same camp as the Glazers and, and Stone Kroenke and, and others. The same as Manchester City's owners have done wonderful things for Manchester City, but they deserve to be slaughtered for going behind their supporters' back and going behind the backs of the other Premier League clubs and other European clubs for for, for doing this. I think there are different degrees of of, of blame in, in all of this for, for a whole variety of things, but I, I would just want all of these clubs to be more accountable, more representative of the interests of their fans and significantly the interests of English and European football. I don't think any of them really have those interests at heart, any of these owners. Can they get away with anything like this again? Was this the final straw? When, Adam, you talked there about dialogue and and how none of the Glazers fronted up in the fans' forum, well, Ollie mentions FSG there and and, uh, Billy Hogan, I think, is addressing supporters' groups. For what it was worth, we saw Josh Kroenke come on to a supporters' call pretty quickly after the collapse of the Super League. Um, I think there was, I know it's again very different. I think there was some sort of dialogue uh, at Chelsea as well. Haven't heard it at Tottenham. But the proof needs to be in the pudding now. There's no getting away from it. It feels like nobody will trust them anymore if they ever did in the first place. Nobody will believe anything they say from now on. So the onus is just on them to show their actions speak louder than words now. It feels like we're at that kind of denouement, no? There's things that are going to happen over the next few years because the, the, the things that have led to these conversations taking place aren't going anywhere. The first of those things is there's been a slowing down in the pace of, um, uh, of the television rights deals and they are not rising in the way that the football clubs want, their, want them to be in order to continue having the, the growth that they previously experienced as a Premier League club. And, and that's the story around Europe, less so in the Premier League, but it's the story in the Premier League as well. And then on top of that, there is also concern that if that growth is not coming, but the price of transfers and the price of wages continues to go up. And then on top of that, you have two or three clubs around Europe, one in Paris, one in Manchester and one in Chelsea that almost appear to have unlimited resources, that those things aren't compatible with having a competitive sport. So these conversations around how you make football sustainable aren't going away. And and I do think from the American owner's point of view, that's what, if you take it at the most generous interpretation possible, the Super League was their attempt to make their world sustainable for them. We weren't thinking about what was going to happen to the rest of the Premier League or the Championship or League One or League Two, but it was how do you make Manchester United sustainable and competitive well, that worked pretty well. That idea in their heads worked pretty well for them. So we're now going to have an issue over the next few years, which is how do we, or how does football combat the fact that you have nation states essentially owning football clubs with unlimited resources, that financial fair play does not appear to have reined that in and now seems quite discredited by the ruling of the Court of Arbitration with Manchester City and what steps can be taken. So I think you're going to see big steps taken against agents or attempts for it that we're already seeing a battle between agents and FIFA. I think conversations around salary caps or some sort of limit may also come in. So I think actually there might be an irony that the players and managers who did quite a lot to stop this happening 
could end up being, um, I suppose, the stakeholders that lose out. What, what you also want to make sure of, and is that you still have healthy competition, and whether you like it or not, the investment into Chelsea and the investment into Manchester City smashed apart the same old winners for for the best part of a, a decade or fifteen years, Ollie, and for all we talk about the 50 plus one model and fan representation. The Bundesliga has had the same winner for the last nine years. So there might be some people going, well, okay, you know, 50 plus one and limit the effect of an owners. Well, actually what that does is then put the most powerful, the most successful, the, the, the clubs with the most fans gives them extra power because it's harder for other clubs to break in without investment. The Bundesliga model, I think it is, it is a far healthier model. That it's not perfect, as, as Rafa Honigstein said the other day, but it seems to be a more controlled, more sensible environment. Now, whether that makes it too controlled, too uncompetitive, too predictable. I don't think anybody was saying this sort of a decade ago when Dortmund were coming from nowhere to win the league under Jurgen Klopp, when Wolfsburg were winning the league, when Bayern were going through a through a dip. The, the thing that has changed over the last decade, and it's changed across Europe, is that the gulf, the financial gulf between the top 10 clubs has, has gone from big to almost completely unassailable. If, if, if Juventus, if PSG, if Bayern if Manchester United are run with any degree of common sense, then they either win the league or come very close to it every year. Real Madrid and Barcelona, the gap between themselves and, and the rest of Spain is, is just enormous. Whether that's in terms of broadcast revenue from their own deals, whether it's commercial deals, match day revenue, but Champions League revenue has basically created this enormous gulf. So I would say the... The model they have in Germany is, is is great, but the model that they've had in UEFA, which has basically enabled Bayern to grow and grow and grow and grow, continuous success, has basically made this gulf absolutely enormous. And what is most galling when you look at how big that gap has become between the big clubs or the rich clubs and the rest, the gap still isn't big enough for them. They still want things in place. So they want a greater share of overseas TV money. They want a greater share of power along around the Premier League table. They now want this sort of closed shop Super League. They want you know, more guarantees about qualification for the Champions League. It's so appallingly greedy. It's so appallingly selfish at the expense of the rest of football that they've got to be reined in. The whole of football should be pulling back against these power grabs. And yet what's happening is that there are more and more power grabs. And I don't know where, where it goes from here, but I can't imagine that the Glazers, Florentino Perez, um, Andrea Agnelli, etc., are, are going to sort of settle down and think, you know what, we're going to go along with this. We'll, we'll, we'll fall into line. I think the opposite is going to happen. I think it's 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 going to blow up again, and it's going to be probably even worse. On that note, could I just quickly ask Adam where literally this is going to go from here? We've got talk of protests by Arsenal fans ahead of Thursday's Europa League second leg. We've got talk of a second round of Manchester United protests and Liverpool supporters seemingly backing it. We've got Liverpool Spirit of Shankly group meeting with Billy Hogan today. We've had Arsenal fans, the Supporters Trust meeting with Daniel Ek. Previously, they met with Boris Johnson after the Super League fallout. Are the government planning to do anything soon? Where do you see this going in the coming weeks and months? They're doing. They're, I think it's Tracy Crouch, who's actually one of the 
people in Parliament who actually cares about football, to be fair. And, and she, she's doing, she's leading the, the government review into football. I think it'll be quite interesting. I think it'll also be interesting to see how, you know, those at the top of government who clearly were very into this on the couple of days where it happened, where feelings were running very high, you know, d- does a conservative free market government really want to start nationalising football clubs and, you know, t- taking it out of the out of the free market? I'm not sure it does. And also, you know, the Premier League has been successful because of a free market model, or, you know, that is a global product for them. And as we talk about global Britain post-Brexit, it would seem unlikely that a conservative government will take serious action. I'm not sure what, what it is that the government will do and how it main, you know how that interest will be maintained. We're in the final, it feels as though we are in the final weeks of the pandemic in the UK. It will be interesting to see whether this is something that sustains itself. You know, obviously the season's about to end. What, you know, does that momentum slow down during the summer? Does it, does it return when you have stadiums, I don't know, at 70, 80% in August, if, if we get to that stage? I do expect significant protests to continue in these final weeks of the season when fans are in the stadium. United Liverpool, again, that the replay of the event that was meant to take place on Sunday feels ripe for, for future incidents. I do expect different movements to start targeting sponsors and, and partners, as I said earlier. But ultimately, you know, these guys own the club and you can't you can't force them to sell. You can't, you know, they, they are in a very powerful position. And, and, you know, it's not as though the Glazers can just wake up tomorrow and sell a football club. Right, it's a process that takes a long time, a lot of due diligence. So they're here for a, you know for a, for a, quite a while. It looks like they were briefing today in certain newspapers that they want to get the valuation up towards ten million, uh, ten billion at Manchester United. No idea how they intend to do that. So it doesn't appear like you know things are going to change overnight. But there's definitely a momentum that they have created themselves through their own stupidity that they would never have expected to encounter at this moment. There's also an issue where their hopes of increasing the value of Manchester United, of Liverpool, etc., have been based on these expansionist plans where, where they were going to be ring-fenced, where their revenue, future revenue was going to go through the roof in theory. So if there was talk of a, a 10 billion valuation of Manchester United, I'm sure that was based on the idea of being ring-fenced, getting their project big picture through, getting their Super League through, and in future, it becoming worth more and more and more. Right now, as the Super League has been thwarted, as Project Big Picture has been thwarted, I know a lot of those things aren't going to disappear off the table, but right now, their ambitions to make Manchester United or Arsenal or Liverpool worth substantially more have been thwarted themselves. So maybe it's the time when they're least likely to want to sell. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, now just to uh, finish the pod, it's time for uh, On the Plane, our weekly feature with the illogical title, looking at how the England squad is shaping up ahead of Euro 2020. And it has been announced that uh, squads are going to be expanded from 23 to 26 players uh, to offset the effects 
of COVID. Is this a good idea, Ollie? I mean, is, is more players going to help or is that going to actually make squad management even more difficult? I think it's, good. it's a good idea if there's felt to be a, a serious risk of infection spreading through squads. And, and, you know, we don't want a situation where teams are down to sort of <laughs> the last 11 players if, if, there's, if there's some sort of mass infection. But it does, you know, it does feel as if we're out of that particular phase uh, right now. But one thing that has, I mean, Michael Cox wrote a very good piece on The Athletic last week, just raising the point that sometimes coaches would you know, regard 23 as, as a bit of an excessive number uh, for, for a tournament. Mm. It's very difficult to keep a squad of 23 players happy when you know one or two of them are going to be walking around with wrong faces, feeling they're not going to play. If you then got 26 players who which probably means you know five six seven of them aren't going to play I think that that, that does create problems man management wise and I think Michael was raising the question would coaches actually take the option of filling all 26 of those places and I'm sure there have been times in the in the not too distant past when it's felt like picking England squad you know, it was a challenge to get beyond 16 maybe there's um, a different situation now with some of the younger players emerging where it, it becomes more exciting to to be able to take a Jude Bellingham or a, or a Sacco or... Just, he's just going to pick another three right backs isn't he to make sure they're all in well yeah another three that'd be a good, a good idea I sort of feel that Southgate will still want to have a tighter squad. He's spoken previously about, you know, 23 being a decent number. Correct me if I'm wrong, wrong, Adam, but this feels more like a safety net, as Ollie explains, in case of COVID situations. I think the squad size on a match day is still going to be limited to 23, but there's flexibility about late replacements related to COVID, goalkeepers uh, being able to drop out until the last minute because of uh, physical incapacity, I think it was phrased as, um, and not so much. You've got loads of people to choose from, um, more this is a unique situation and we're trying to help you here a bit. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. It'd be quite interesting to see what he does. I mean, like with someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold, who we've discussed before in, in, in this feature where... You know, it doesn't look like it didn't feel to us as though he would actually make the squad in the summer based on the pattern of behaviour over the past six months. Does he then take him, but then does he not put him in the squad? And then does that become a huge issue when England don't beat Scotland or whoever they're going to play? I would just use it for wildcard players or, you know, sticking a Mason Greenwood, a Saka, people who have that little bit of extra quality that you'd like you know, that you might be able to bring on, you know, to, cha- to change a game at, at that point in time. The points you guys have made are correct, that generally head coaches these days, they like smaller squads, they're easier to manage. You know, particularly at tournament, I think most head coaches tend to know the team they want to play in every game. And then you bring in one or two out. So all of a sudden, you're probably going to have seven, eight, nine players that just aren't really doing anything, um, that are just part of it. So I'll be interested to see how that, how Southgate manages that. But I think he's quite a good, he's quite a good man manager, but it will create an issue if you're then taking talent, very talented players who don't get into the matchday squad. Yeah, no, well, that's it. That's the other thing, isn't it? Yeah. Very talented players. It's not like you're bumping three kids up no. from the year to take them on a Europa League trip. No. I mean, they, they, these are all going to be players who play regularly for elite, in the main, Champions League clubs. And 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 they all have egos. You don't you don't want to go to make up the numbers. Yeah, you know, I'm sort of thinking about players that could benefit from this. Obviously, Jack Grealish has had an injury. Maybe if there were doubts about taking him because of that, maybe you stick him in now. Jesse Lingard, again, I mean, but these these players we're talking about, like, they are players who can win matches and it would be really odd if they're just 
not in the squad and in the stands. And inevitably, it will probably lead to discussions between fans and supporters say, oh, I can't believe we didn't win this game. And this guy's you know, sat in the stands and the camera keeps panning to him. But I'm sure other countries will have the same problem as well, to a lesser extent. But also, Ollie, being taken along in an environment that I would assume would still be sort of have, have COVID bubble implications, not, not sort of in an environment where they can go out for a walk and a coffee or, or, or whatever it may be, you know, having come off a season where they have been in yeah. very sort of strict COVID environments. Yeah, well, th- th- those tournaments are often, you know, the, the teams are in a bit of a bubble anyway. Journalists are often mm. in, a bit, in a bit of a bubble anyway. But um, it, it's, um, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine anybody being thrilled at the idea of going along and being there for a month. No, I mean, look, if, if we talk about England, probably two weeks, um, <laughs> and not kicking a ball when when they've not had any break, they've probably not had any holiday for for um, yeah, nearly nearly two years. I know I know sympathy for for footballers is is not always abundant. To be fair, a few did manage to get to Mykonos last summer, but that went quietly, <laughs> didn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think the idea of going along and being the sort of twenty fifth, twenty sixth man would be quite disheartening for for certain players. As as crazy as that sounds, I don't think anybody wants to be sort of going along to make make up the numbers. Uh, right, we will leave it there. Uh, thank you. More on the plane on next week's pod and on the Athletics YouTube channel. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to David and Adam and Ollie. Uh, I'll be back on Thursday with the Business of Sport podcast. Bye for now. The Athletic.